John chapter 18. This morning we are entering into the third sermon of a sermon series from Gethsemane to glory, studying the last hours of Jesus' life, something that he referred to as the hour um, throughout his life, throughout his ministry. And in week number one, we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Last week, we looked at Jesus being on trial before his own people, um, a trial that took place at night, and then the second trial that took place during the morning, so that supposedly they weren't breaking any laws of condemning a man during the night. And now that the Jews have agreed that it is time uh, for Jesus to die, they have a dilemma on their hands, that being that they cannot kill somebody. And so... What they're going to attempt to do is now bring Jesus before the authorities of Rome that have the ability to sentence him to death. This morning, that's where we pick up our story in John chapter 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. It was at that moment that Pilate realized the reason they're bringing him to me is they want this man to die. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? He didn't look like a king, especially to Pilate. Jesus didn't dress like all the other rulers of the day. He didn't dress like the Pharisees and the scribes of his time, and he certainly did not dress like a king. Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you of this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? When he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried out, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Okay, this morning before I... uh, bring us into the moment, and before I bring us into the event that's taking place, I want to just kind of walk you through a timeline of it so that you get the picture in your head of what is happening. Last week, we remember that Jesus was arrested at night. He was brought before Annas. Annas tried to find a way to trap him up, but could not. So he was delivered to Caiaphas and all the scribes and the elders that had assembled at night, early, early morning, to condemn Jesus to die. They condemned Him to die, even after not getting anybody to witness against Him truthfully. Uh, The the Bible told us, as we looked last week, that many accused Him falsely, but even their testimonies did not agree. Finally, the morning came, and according to their own laws, the trial that they had had the night before was illegal. So they have the same trial again, hours later, as soon as the sun comes up, It's really nothing more but a mock trial to go through the correct motions, the religious motions, to somehow justify their actions. 
And they, and during that morning trial, have the same conclusion they did hours earlier. He needs to die. And so now they take him to Caiaphas. What I want you to see this morning is that last week we looked at Jesus being on trial before his own people. We looked at Jesus being on trial before the people of God. Those who believe in Jehovah God. Those who believe in the authority of the Bible. uh, Brought on trial before those who claim to be teachers and believers of the laws of God. Brought on trial before those who claim to keep His commandments. But this morning, Jesus is brought to be on trial before the people of the world. The rulers of Rome and the Gentiles. And the tragedy of the thought is this. Jesus, the very God-man, the Son of God, is actually dragged out into the public courts and put on trial before the people of the world. In an effort to get the people of the world to join together with the people of the church to crucify and kill God. It is an absolute low point in the history of the human race. But this morning I asked the question, is the church much different today? I tried to picture um, myself in Pilate's shoes. Pilate is the, the, the chief guy in charge in our story. He is the Roman authority that has the ability to either set Jesus free or sentence him to death. He is not a religious man. He is not a Jew. He is not a believer in the Old Testament way. And I, I think to myself, trying to put myself in his shoes, what was he thinking? What was he thinking when these supposed religious Jews who wanted to be good moral people in the society and supposedly were believers in God, what was Pilate thinking as they were coming with a mob trying to get him to use his authority to kill an innocent man? Pilate said, I've examined him and I find no fault. And as I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but wonder today, does the world that we live in look at us and see the same type of foolishness? Does the world that we're trying to reach look at us the way Pilate looked at them and say, you don't even believe in the very God you claim to worship? Does the world look at us and see infighting, divisions and and, and, and fractions and, and pain and strife? Or does the world look at us and see a church that is ruled by the peace and the love of God? A church that is moved with convictions for what is real and what is true. When the world looks at you, what do they see? We see the church has brought Jesus before Pilate. Pilate eventually sends Jesus to Herod. We find in... um, it's either Matthew 27 or Luke 23. Herod is warned in his wife of a dream not to do anything against Jesus. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 19. Herod is warned by his wife in a dream. We see the evidence of God's intervention even in the life of the Gentiles. There are some who have falsely argued that God only tries to work with one group of people. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish. There is not any person on the face of the earth that God is willing that they should perish. It is not God's will that anybody should die without Him. For God so loved the world, not the elect, not the chosen, the world, that He gave His only begotten Son. When Jesus died... And when Jesus is being crucified, we'll look at this, I believe, next week, if we continue on the pace that we're moving. What did Jesus say of the very Roman soldiers that were driving nails through His wrist? He said of them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We see Jesus' heart was for the Roman soldiers. Sorry. 
Okay. Sorry about that. We see Jesus' heart was even for the Roman soldiers that were crucifying Him. His prayer was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We see Herod. And Herod's wife comes to him and says, I have suffered many things in a dream because of this man. And we see God's intervention in the hearts of everyone. I would submit that there's really three pockets of people in our story other than Jesus Himself. You have the disciples who are true followers. You have the disciples who really believe Jesus' words. The disciples who were honestly committed to serving the Lord. And right now, at this stage in the game, they have all fled and they are fearful about what is going to take place. Then you have the religious, self-righteous group who claim to love God, who claim to, to be followers of God, who claim to love the Word of God, but have actually put the very Word of God on trial and are working to kill it. And then you have the Gentiles if you will, the rest of the world. It's just kind of on the sidelines watching this event unfold. And what we see is God is, is involved and connected with every single group. Every single one of these groups are involved in our story. Pilate asks two very important questions. In John chapter 18 and verse 38 in our text, Pilate said to him, what is truth? Of all the pictures that, in my mind, are most fascinating pictures, if you were to able, able to be there with a camera and actually take a snapshot, this is one of my favorite pictures in the entire Bible. You have Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the truth, not one of many truths, not a truth, not some truth. He is the truth. You have Him standing here. And you have Pilate facing Him face to face, looking in His eyes, and yet asking the question, what is truth? It's an amazing snapshot of time. And again, we see the need for spiritual illumination. I said it last week about the Pharisees. You can know the Word of God and not know the God of the Word. You can answer every single test and uh, question on, on a test about religious things and get it right and still spend forever in hell. Being able to say that you believe Jesus is the Son of God doesn't make you a Christian. The devils believe and yet tremble. That's what James says. You have to be in an authentic, real relationship with Jesus where you have surrendered to His will and you are following Him. And it takes spiritual illumination for us to be able to see that. It takes, it takes God illuminating truth to our, our mind and the, the eyes of our heart that we can see truth. And here is Pilate. If I may boldly say so, like many of you probably here this morning, that stare face uh, to face with truth, that look truth right down in the eyes, and yet you are still not convinced what is true and what is not. Still not fully convinced that Jesus is the only way, that there is no alternative, that it's not just religion, it's not just a good thing to do, that Jesus isn't maybe just a good man. You have not been convinced yet that He is the God-man, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but through Him. You have not been convinced of that yet. And yet you stare truth in the face week after week after week. Pilate also asks another question. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 22, he asks this question, what shall I do with this man named Jesus? Of the few questions that are of absolute most importance in your life, that is probably one of the top two or three questions you will ever answer. What shall I do with this man you call Jesus Christ? You need to understand something. You have to do something with him. I'm getting a hold ahead of myself, but later Pilate washes his hands in front of the people. Unfortunately for his sake, 
The washing of his hands did nothing for the washing of his soul. And he still stood guilty as a murderer of the Son of God. Because you have to do something with the man named Jesus. If you say to yourself this morning, no, I haven't done anything with him. I haven't said that he's bad. I haven't said that he's good. I, I, I haven't made a decision to follow him, but I haven't necessarily made a decision to reject him either, Pastor. I'm just kind of in limbo on this. Listen to the preacher this morning, friend. You have made a decision to reject him until the day that you give your heart and your life to him. You must do something with Jesus. And choosing to do quote-unquote Nothing with Jesus is the same as saying, I will not follow Him. What will I do with this man you call Jesus? Let me ask you, what have you done with Him? What have you done with Jesus? Is He the centerpiece of your life? Is He the driving force in the decisions you make? The relationships you have? The things that you watch? The... The, the, the things that you entertain yourself with, the, the things that you invest yourself into? Or is Jesus just uh, a, a modern-day cool symbol in your life? It's amazing the number of people that wear crosses around. Just about anybody wear a cross around their neck. But when it comes time to actually taking up their cross and bearing it on their back and going to the hill that God's called them to hill, called them to go, very few are willing to do so. What have you done with Jesus? Is He just something you've tried to add to your slice of life? If your life was a big pie and we were to put your life on a pie chart, do you just have your little Jesus slice? Your good little religious part of your life? Because in our society, that's an acceptable thing. In our society, that's what you do. Everybody that's going to be a good, upstanding citizen needs to have a little religion. So you've got your Jesus slice of of the pie in your life. Can I submit to you this morning, if that's you, what you have in your life isn't really Jesus at all. Jesus desires all of your life. He is the Lord over all creation. He wants to be the Lord over our hearts. Pilate says, what shall I do with this man named Jesus? He asked a very important question. What is truth? And Pilate then begins to seek a compromise. In verse 38, Pilate says to the Jews, I find no fault in him at all. By the way, this is the case because Pilate honestly considered what Jesus said. Pilate had listened to what Jesus had to say, and Pilate honestly said, I find no fault in the man. Unlike the self-righteous that had condemned him to die previously. He says, but I have a, you have a custom that I should release someone to, to the Passover. Shall I release Jesus or shall I release Barabbas, the robber? Much like in our day and time, uh, you, you may have seen, and there's always conflict depending on who's in the White House, but the idea of a presidential pardon, that the president will pardon somebody that has requested pardon. Well, they had a custom that once a year at this time, that the Jews, if they felt like somebody was in prison that shouldn't be in prison, that Rome had dealt with somebody harshly, they could request that that person be pardoned and the governor would let him go. See, I want you to see what Pilate's starting to do here. Pilate himself is starting to become religious. Trying to find a way to to look right without actually being right. Trying to find a compromise to appease everybody. He didn't want to sentence Jesus to die. He had met with Jesus and said, I find no fault in the man. But he knows the crowd is an angry mob of people. Again, I put myself in Pilate's shoes and I think, what a testimony from the very people that claim to be the true lovers of God. And Pilate basically says this. He says, look, let's strike a deal. I'm going to give you two options. I'm not even going to take requests. You've got two options on who I'm going to let go. 
either I can beat Jesus, scourge Him, which is a bloody, terrible event we'll look at here in a couple of moments. Either I can beat Jesus and release Him, or I can release Barabbas. Pilate was convinced they would, they would not let Barabbas be released. This text tells us Barabbas was a robber. One of the other Gospels tells us that Barabbas was the leader of a revolt. And Luke's Gospel tells us not only was he a robber and a leader of a revolt, but that he was a murderer. Barabbas was an absolute wicked criminal that was well known. Two of the Gospels use the word infamous. He was known. He was famous for all of his wicked deeds. It would be similar to us being given the option to release the BTK serial killer. And Pilate was so convinced that his compromise, look, I will scourge Jesus, we'll tie him to the whipping post, and we'll beat the flesh off of his back, and we'll nearly beat him to death, and then we'll release him. Or we can release Barabbas. He was convinced they would never say, release Barabbas. He thought he'd found a compromise that would work. But the people shouted, release Barabbas. I can't help but think what was running through Pilate's mind at this time. The wickedness of self-righteousness is unbelievable, folks. They began to cry out, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. This morning I think about how wicked it is that, that these people who claim to be lovers of God, they, they've gone through this, uh, uh, this process of trying to find a way to plot Jesus' death. For months they've been collaborating together. How can we get Him caught up? How can we trip up His feet? How can we find a way that He can be condemned to die? Finally, they're, they're close. They're, they brought Him before Pilate. And Pilate brings out the most vile and wicked person of their society who is guilty of murder and robbery and leading a revolt and all sorts of wickedness. And he says, do you want me to release this man or do you want me to let Jesus go? And they say, let Barabbas go free. This morning, if any of us in this room have a conscience that still has the slightest heartbeat in it, we would all agree that is an unbelievable, wicked atrocity. How do you choose to say no to Jesus going free and yes to the wicked man Barabbas being set free back into the streets? How do you do such a thing? Can I say this morning, how do you refuse to let Jesus have freedom in your life while you let your vile lusts run wild? Because we're faced with the same decision today. Is it Jesus or is it Barabbas? How do you say, no, Jesus will not have freedom in my life in this area. Instead, I will hold on to my drugs and my alcohol and my sin. You free Barabbas too. See, the choice is ours. Who will live? Will it be Barabbas or will it be Jesus? Talking to you this morning about real spiritual truth. I'm not talking about the lifestyle where we just try to have the Jesus slice in our life so that we look religious and kind of fit in with society. What do you let live over Jesus in your life? What do you allow to walk on and have reign in your life and in your heart, but you suppress Jesus and you keep Him locked up on the sideline? I would submit to you it's as equally vile in the eyes of God when we hang on to our pornography and our lust and our drunkenness and our drugs and whatever it else might be in our life that's keeping us from God and we refuse to let Jesus have the freedom to be God in our lives. So Pilate, thinking that 
he would somehow have found a compromise, finds out that these people are too wicked. We see the double dagger of religion. In our text, we see that Rome is more kind towards Jesus than the Jews at this state and time, hardened by the deceitfulness of self-righteousness. This is the work of Satan. There's not any way for me to properly explain what I'm about to say and everybody understand it. Only the Spirit of God can reveal it to you. And I pray this morning that if you have a heart that really wants to, to learn and a heart that really wants to listen, you'll tune in right now. Self-righteousness looks a whole lot like God-righteousness. First, I want to show you how similar it looks, and then I want to deal with how different it really is. These men, they went to church every week. They read their Bible every week. They could quote it and quote it and quote it and quote it. They loved to talk about it. They worked to go through all of the exterior rituals flawlessly so that they could look and seem as great holy men of God. Their entire life was devoted to the things of God. It's different being devoted to God and being devoted to the things of God. And from the outside world, they looked like deep religious men. But the Bible shows us in this very story and in this very event that we're examining how wicked and how deceitfully wicked the heart can be when what we have is nothing more than a false self-righteousness where we think that we're something because of what we do and we are not truly, honestly devoted to God. What are some signs of being self-righteous? If you in any way ever excuse your sins. I'm just preaching to you truth this morning. If you say to yourself, I know this is a sin, but everybody sins, you are self-righteous. You don't care about sin. You don't care about hurting God's heart. You, you, you haven't learned to appreciate all that He had to endure so that we could be forgiven, so that our sins could be forgiven. To point to the blood that has dripped down Calvary's cross and the brutality that our Savior had to go through and use that as some excuse for me to live like a sinner and then yet profess myself righteous? It is so wicked. It is so unbelievably wicked. And even the Gentiles of this world who do not have God in their heart are looking at Jesus and saying, He's done nothing wrong. Let Him live. But the self-righteous say, No. There is no compromise for us. He must die. And what you will find, we see it in our text, what self-righteous people hate the most is truly the clear, pure teachings of God's Word. That's what they hate the most. It's okay if it's general. It's okay if somehow it appeases them. It's okay if somehow there's some laws they can follow to lift them up. But when the Word of God turns internal, and it is that you, my friend, are a sinner, you are an enemy of God, you are nothing more, as Jesus said, than a whitewashed tomb full of nothing but dead men's bones, and you're not fooling anybody, you're not fooling your family, you're not fooling yourself, and you're not fooling God. It is in that moment when all of a sudden self-righteousness turns to indignation and anger and the response is, I will do whatever it takes to silence that voice. This morning, which are you? We are at the stage of our study of Jesus' last hour. And it's intense. This is not necessarily a hallelujah shoot, uh, shouting type message. I get that. But we have entered into the hour. We are examining the reality of what had to occur. We are examining the reality of how wicked we truly are. Each and every one of us. All of us at times have said, let Barabbas live. Every one of us. Lay down your self-righteousness this morning. Get honest with yourself. 
Every one of us at times have said, Barabbas, you can live. Every one of us at times have been pulled into the crowd and have just gone through the motion. Every one of us are guilty. There are none that, are, uh, that do, have not sinned. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. We see the road to Calvary comes with much scorn. Jesus endures absolute beating. In John chapter 19, verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged Him. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on His head, and they put him on Him a purple robe, and they said, Hail the King of Jews, and they struck Him with their hands. Look at verse 4 of John chapter 19, important verse. Pilate then went out again. See, this is after the beating. Again, and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know I find no fault in him. Why did you beat him then, Pilate? Because you're like most people. You're a coward. You're afraid to stand for what's true. And you're more concerned about what people think, and you're more concerned about balance and everybody getting along than standing for what is real and saying, If God is God, then I will stand for Him and I will follow what is true no matter what it costs me. But Jesus was scourged. If you've ever seen the Passion of Christ, it does a great job depicting the brutality of that event. Why didn't Jesus just... I mean, if He had to die for for the the sins of man, why couldn't it be a, a fairly painless death? Why couldn't He just go to the cross and die on the cross? Why did He have to be stripped naked, humiliated publicly, Nearly beat to death. Mocked. Why? Until we understand how horrible sin really is, we'll never understand the penalty that had to be paid. I do not apologize for calling sin what it is. Fornication is fornication. Lying is lying. By the way, there's no liars in heaven. All liars have their part in the lake of fire. That's what the Word of God says. Fornication is a sin. Homosexuality is a sin. Hatefulness is a sin. Bitterness is a sin. Unforgiveness is a sin. And somehow our culture has tried to dumb down the reality of what sin is. And I'm telling you, when you do that, the cross doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why would Jesus have to endure what He had to endure? You understand, they they took his hands and they tied them together and they tied him to a post so that he couldn't fall down. And with his back exposed, they began to beat the flesh off of his back. There's no way to know with absolute certainty the tools that were used in that event. But we do know with absolute certainty that one of the main tools that was used in that event by Roman soldiers when they would do such a thing was something called the cat of nine tails. And what it was was a whip that in essence had a ball um, about two feet, or excuse me, about one foot from the end of it. And then coming out of that ball was, was things like barbed wire and strings with hooks on it and, and all sorts of things that would catch flesh. And when they would take that whip and they would throw it out, the weight of the ball would go first, it would punch the back, creating a bruise, and when they would pull it back, the the hooks that were in it would come forward and actually grab the flesh and pull the flesh away. It is an absolute wicked tool of torture. Most theologians agree that is the most likely tool that was used in his lashing publicly. I have no doubt Pilate was trying to do everything he could to let the Jews... Be satisfied so that Jesus wouldn't have to be crucified. And there, our Savior, the Son of God, the one who came to this earth because He loved you enough to pay your penalty, there He stood and was beat nearly to death. And blood is all over the place. And it's happening while a crowd of people surrounds and cheers and applauds the torture. Why would He do it? Number one, for you. Number two, brothers and sisters, we need a renewed sense of the horror of sin. 
It's not just mistakes. It's not just something that we just take lightly. Oh, sister so-and-so, she's just always struggling with lying. Brother so-and-so, he's always just such a gossip. Brother or sister so-and-so, they're just always kind of dealing with greed and want more and more and more. We just act like sin's just no big deal. Everybody's got their sins, right? Is that how you handle sin in your life? You need a picture of what Jesus had to go through because of your sin. Because the penalty that He took was yours. That's what you should have gone through for what you have done. And the worst thing of sin is not just that we sin against each other. It's not just that my sin hurts you or that my sin hurts my children or that my sin hurts my wife, that my sin affects society. But the worst thing about sin is that it is an absolute rebellion against the one true almighty creator God. It is a sin against Him. It is you. It is Him that you have chosen to rebel against. It is Him that you have chosen to refuse His commands. It is Him that you have sinned against. And there is a penalty to be paid for those who have sinned against the Almighty God. And of all the sins that you've done, don't be so self-righteous delusional to think you can just start showing up to church and be a good person and somehow God's going to forget all those sins. No. Your sins have to be placed on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. You have to understand that your wickedness, not just the whole world, not mine, not the person to the left, and not the person to the right, your wickedness constituted such a death. And Jesus looked at you and said, you couldn't handle it. You couldn't do it. So I'm going to come and I'm going to do it for you. That's the message of the Gospel. Jesus did what we could not. He took all of the sins, every single last one, from the least to the greatest. He took all the sins of the world and said, I will pay for them on Calvary's cross. We need to have a horror of sin. Sin is not something to be dealt lightly with. Did He deal lightly with it? Did God think sin was a joking matter? Absolutely not. This morning I ask you, child of God, do you fall apart? Do you, do you, are you broken when you sin against the Holy God? You should. You should be broken. Thank God that we have a, an advocate in Jesus Christ and as the Bible, as 1 John tells us, that when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. The penalty has been paid. But my point this morning is that concerning the beating of Jesus, if you don't understand why it was so brutal, you've not yet understood how terrible sin is. A couple more thoughts this morning. I'm done. Verse 2 of chapter 19, they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, and then they said, Hail, King. They placed upon him the purple robe. Purple was a sign of royalty. It was often the color of a robe that many kings would wear. I hope that God will help you to get the picture in your head. Jesus has now been beaten. There is blood all over the place. The crowd is cheering. The crowd is roaring. That is done. They, they, they take his hands and they cut the ropes open. And now, after this, they place a purple robe on him. They take a crown of thorns and stick it on his head. And then they actually kneel and, and say, Hail to the king. Humans are wicked. Absolutely wicked. We need a Savior. But I want you to see this. They, they put this robe on Him and then they begin to worship Him and mock Him. And again, this morning we think to ourselves, 
How could they do such a thing? How could you be so brutal to somebody that had never did anything wrong? I have no doubt in a crowd this size, there's many of you who showed up this morning and you did the exact same thing. You put the robe of false worship, the purple robe of hypocrisy, on the Lord Jesus this morning when you came in and began to praise and worship Him. Don't worship Him with your life. You cuss like a sailor throughout the week. You watch pornography. You drink to drunkenness. You abuse your drugs. You lie. You cheat. You steal. And you show up. And you put the false purple robe on Jesus, just like these, and you mock Him. Worshiping a God you don't even serve. Saying hail to a king who's not your king at all. You're your king. It's a tragedy. This morning, are you guilty of it? Is he really your king and do you really worship him? Because guys, worship's a whole lot more than showing up and singing a song or two. I felt the Spirit of God this morning when we worshipped. I'm not knocking coming together and worshipping. What I am telling you is we are in utter hypocrisy if we deny Him with our lives, if we deny Him with our lips, if we live lives where He is not our King, He is not God, He is not Lord, and then think that we can simply show up and kick a leg and raise a hand and somehow think that we're worshipping God. It's no different than the false worship of putting the purple robe that they did on Him. God, help us to be honest with ourselves this morning. I know this morning I'm preaching pretty tough to you. But I happen to be dealing with the hour, which was the absolute worst point of human history. There is no greater moment that we can examine with a magnifying glass and really see the ability of us to be utterly wicked, to be utterly deceived, and to be totally, completely going in the wrong direction, yet thinking that we're all that we're okay. There is no greater picture than the one we're looking at this morning that shows us that. This morning, are you guilty of the hypocrisy of worshiping? Jesus in a false robe. Pilate washed his hands. He eventually stood before them, brought Jesus out after they had mocked him. He was convinced, absolutely convinced, this is going to be enough. This will be enough for them. They're going to say, all right, don't let Barabbas out, let Jesus go. That taught him a lesson. Surely he'll quit preaching. Surely he'll quit doing these things. Pilate was convinced that would happen. But instead, they continued to cry, crucify Him, crucify Him. Pilate eventually goes out and he washes his hands, symbolizing he has no guilt in this. Pilate was just as guilty as everybody else. Pilate condemned himself four times. Three times he said, I find no fault in him. And then one time he said, I have the power to release you. Yet he washed his hands. You can't wash your hands of Jesus. You can't wash your hands of your guilt. You can't wash your hands of the cross. All of us are guilty. Every last one of us. And the only one that can wash us is God. He can wash our soul. And when He does, He washes it, the Bible calls, whiter than snow. Not a whole lot of things we've ever seen whiter than snow. But that's what God does with our hearts when we truly commit to Him. When we say, no longer am I going to be my king. No longer am I going to be the God of my life. No longer am I going to go after the own dictates of my heart. But I will follow Christ. 
Wherever He leads and whatever He says and whatever He does, He will be my God. I ask this morning, can you honestly say that? Is He your God? I didn't ask, do you believe He's God? I didn't ask, do you believe He's the Son of God? I didn't ask, do you believe that He died on a cross and rose from the dead? I'm asking you a question. Is He your God? Or are you still your God? Who makes the calls in your life? As our worship team comes and and prepares a song of invitation, our story would seem to indicate that Jesus is on trial before everybody. That Jesus stands before the Romans, before Pilate, before the Jews and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and that Jesus is on trial. But this morning, the reality is every one of these were truly standing before Jesus. Guilty before Him and not the other way around. And each and every one of us, like them, stands before Jesus. We give an account to Him, not the other way around. We answer to God. God does not answer to us. This morning I ask the question, have you honestly and truly given your heart to God? Are you honestly and truly serving Him? Is He honestly and truly your King? Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, sin has raised its head once again, and I did not stand in the power that you've given, creating me a clean heart, O God. Spirit within me, for you alone can fully redeem, and you alone can lift me up from the
Okay. 